So good to have so many people in our worship area this morning. I love the, uh, the praise dancing that was going on with some of our children this morning. Uh, well done. I think Nicola taught him to do that. Good job, Nicola. So I, I grew up on a horse farm uh, just south of here in Stoughton, Wisconsin, um, really close to a little unincorporated town called Utica. I don't know if you know where that is. They have a huge festival with like uh, tractor pulls and softball tournament, you know, a huge festival over there. So I was in the boonies, but I grew up on a horse farm, and I loved having horses. I mean, our horses were, were really cool. Like, when we would drive in, they would run along the fence line to, like, greet us and run alongside of our car, and I loved riding. We had so many neighbors and trails that we knew that I could ride all day long and not hit the same trail twice. It was just a, a really cool upbringing. But I will say, as the oldest of five kids, when I got older, I didn't really like having horses quite as much because I was responsible for caring for the horses. Those were my chores. So I can tell you three things I didn't like about growing up on a horse farm. First of all is hay. Not only do I not like hay because it's dusty, nasty, gross stuff, but I had to drive up to a farm, which actually was really cool for a little while because I wasn't 16 yet and I got to drive the car up to get hay, but I had to go up in this hay barn throw hay bales out of the hay barn, and one of them would always break open, and then I'd have to try to tie them back together and then load them up on top of the luggage rack on my station wagon. Yeah, I didn't have a pickup truck. It was a station wagon that we, we hauled around hay with, which was really cool. So I did not like that part of raising horses. Secondly, is in the wintertime, we couldn't leave hoses out, so I had to water the horses by filling up five-gallon buckets full of water and then walking them over to where they were at, and it would always spill on there, and instantly, like, my pant legs would freeze up. I would have solid pant legs, and when I tried to take them off afterwards, they wouldn't quite come off right. I did not like watering the horses in the wintertime. But perhaps my least favorite thing about having horses was my, my dad's instruction for me. Like if my dad was working late, he would call and he would remind me like, hey, make sure you, you feed and water the horses. Make sure you feed and water the horses. And then he would talk for like another minute and he'd say, make sure you feed and water the horses. And then he'd talk for another minute and he'd say, make sure you feed and water the horses. And I bet he would tell me like at least five times on the phone to feed and water the horses. And after like the second time, I'm like, I got it, dad. I got it, I'm good. Now, I don't know why he did this, uh, perhaps it's just the way my dad is wired. I think there's probably some truth to that. Uh, maybe it was just the Johnson way. I think there's probably some truth to that as well. Maybe he knew that as a teenage boy that I need to hear at least twice to actually go and feed the horses. But I bet it was because it was such an important thing that he wanted to make sure that it was going to get done. He wanted to remind me because if I forgot to feed and water the horses, that would not be good for the horses. Be like not feeding your child for a day. See how that one works. That's a little bit what Paul is doing here at the beginning of Romans, isn't it? You know, if you've been coming here for a while and you're sitting here today and you heard the scripture read, you're like, really, are we still talking about this? We've been talking about like this bad news, this bad news of the gospel. And I say the bad news of the gospel, there's, there's no bad news in the gospel, but there's bad news that you need to hear before you understand how good this good news really is. So Paul spends just a ton of time at the beginning of Romans just telling us how bad this news actually is. And when he does that, we're going to see how much we need 
this good news. So Paul keeps hammering and hammering this idea of bad news. Paul wants his listeners to get off their high horse, no pun intended, and come back down to earth. You know, because of the religious culture of that day, because the Jews had the law, there was a belief that if we just follow what the law says, then we will be good and it will be right before God. Do you know anybody like this? Is this perhaps yourself on on many days? You know, just follow all the rules, check off all the boxes, do all the right things, avoid all the wrong things, and then God will be forced to accept you. I mean, that's moralism to a T. Paul is trying to tell them that this is not how it works. The moralism is not a good solution, that there has to be another solution to be made right with God. So he keeps talking about this. The first time Paul speaks of it, the natural reaction from the Jewish audience is probably like, okay, well, he's not talking about us. He's talking about the Gentiles. So then if you remember like uh, the third week of our sermon series, we talked about, okay, it's not just the Gentiles. It's, it's for the Jews as well. And then the, the reaction was like, well, he's probably still talking about, you know, the other people, the, the Jews that aren't following the law very well. He's not talking about me. I follow the law really well. So then Paul starts talking about teachers of the law, the people that were respected and, and were high up there. And there still had to be people that are like, well, he's still not talking about me. I mean, obviously, Paul doesn't know how well I actually follow the law, how holy and righteous I, I actually am. So then Paul goes even further, and he starts talking about this the circumcision and, and that the Jews weren't living like, like Christians on, on the outside, or they were living only on the outside and not on the inside. They needed the circumcision of the heart. And then we get to today, and Paul continues to hammer this idea down that you are not good enough on your own. And I'd be surprised if there was anybody that would be left sitting on their high horse after this message today, because Paul almost gets a little bit harsh here doesn't he? What Paul does in this final section of this bad news is is to show the religious how bad the bad news really is. And he does this by saying, you know, you have misinterpreted the law. You think the law was given to you so that you follow all the rules that you could be made right and holy before God, but that's not the purpose of the law. So there's three purposes that Paul lays out here. One is that he show, the law shows us that we're not better than others. Secondly, the law confronts us with our own sinfulness. And then lastly, the law reveals our need for a savior. And these first two are, are really like two sides of the same coin, right? We're not better than others because we're all sinners. We're, we're all the same. Look at verse 9. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I mean, Paul really comes over the top on this one, doesn't he? But his point cannot be missed. Are are we better than others? No way. 
Are the moral better than the immoral? No way. Are the religious better than the irreligious? No way. So what Paul does here, um, you don't find it anywhere else in, in his writing. He takes several Old Testament passages, and at least six here, some say nine, some say even more, and he just strings them together to make his point. Like he takes little sections of Old Testament scripture, especially a lot, lot in the Psalms, and uh, this is what the rabbis called pearl stringing. So Paul uses one long statement by taking pieces of these different scriptures to make this point that we're not good enough on our own. I'm not going to hit on all these scriptures this morning. In fact, I'm, I'm only going to hit on one of them outside of this passage. Uh, hopefully you get a chance to talk about those in your, your city groups. But Paul uses this technique and hopes that when he's done, that no one is left thinking that they're good enough, that they can follow all the laws and that God will be forced to accept them. I'm going to point out one, you know, besides using several verses from the Psalms, Paul uses ones from Ecclesiastes 7.20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. I mean, that just fits right in with what Paul's talking about here. Look back at our verse um, in verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. No one does good, not even one. I left a little bit out there, but I wanted to highlight just all of those negative comments in there. Let me make it even smaller. None, no, not one. No one, no one, no one, not even one. Still think maybe you're, you're an exception there? An exemption? From these rules, Paul is driving it home. Don't miss this. Get off your high horse. You're not better than anyone else. No one is righteous. And he continues with this, this pearl stringing throughout the rest of this. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. And then he talks about just different parts of our body to make sure like, you know, it's just not one thing. We use so many different parts. It's our whole body that has fallen. Our mouths, verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of their asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet, their feet are swift to shed blood. And their path are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. Their eyes, there is no fear of God before their eyes. No one is exempt. We are all completely fallen and lost apart from God's grace. I want to pause there for just a second. Because when you hear that, I, I know there's probably a defense mechanism for some of like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What do you mean we're, we're like completely lost and fallen? And what Paul's saying here is not saying like you're as bad as you possibly could be, right? You could be a lot worse. It's not, Paul's not saying that nobody ever does anything good. Maybe there's sometimes you, you do things that are good, that, that you look around and, and the, you see things that even the world does. You say, wow, that's, that's pretty good. But that's not what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying is that we are morally bankrupt. We are, we are spiritually 
broke. We, we, don't, we don't have a dollar in our pockets. Why is that? It's because of the second side of this coin. We are no better than anyone else because we are sinners just like everyone else. We are all sinners. I heard this uh, illustration and I, I tried to look it up to find out uh, who did it so I could give them credit. I couldn't find it and because I couldn't find it, I'm having to paraphrase a little bit, but hopefully the point still comes across. But there was a pastor who was on an airplane and he was talking to somebody who, who believed that you got to heaven just by being morally good, just be a good person. So he takes out a napkin and uh, he draws a, a, a horizontal line across this napkin. And on the top of the napkin, he writes, God's standard of goodness. And he asks the person, he says, now who do you think would fit in this top category? Like who are some people you think about when you think of uh, matching God's standard of goodness? And the person lists off Mother Teresa, you know, Mother Teresa was so selfless in her work with, with orphans. I mean, who wouldn't go in there other than Mother Teresa? And then she lists off Billy Graham and she talks about how great of a preacher and evangelist he was. And then he says, well, okay, those are, those are some cool people to put up there, but what about the bottom? Like who belongs in this bottom section of falling short of God's standard of goodness? course she first responds with with Hitler you know that's always the first response of, of anybody when we look at being morally corrupt as Hitler right and then she lists off Jeffrey Dahmer and other serial killers and child molesters and and these are people who who clearly fall short of the standard of God's goodness right but then he says where do you put yourself and the person pauses for a second I said, well, well, surely I'm not as good as like a Mother Teresa or, or a Billy Graham, but I, I sure am better than the people in the bottom. I'm, I mean, I'm not like Hitler. So I'd probably put myself, you know, up in the top box, but, but just barely in the top box. So in other words, the person thought that they were good enough to make that in God's standard of goodness to be in that upper box. So therefore... They felt like they met God's standard of goodness. Anyone here who feels like somehow that we actually match up and stand up for God's standard of goodness, we just need to look back at this passage again. Here you have Paul, who was formerly Saul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a, a person who others looked up to as, as a great teacher of the law. The Pharisees were, were well-respected, and he, he stood up as a, a leader of Pharisees, and then he meets Jesus, he runs away from being a Pharisee, and he becomes a Christian, dare I say, a Christian of Christians. He's persecuted, he's beaten, he's stoned, he's imprisoned, all because of the name of Jesus, and yet he continues to preach, continues to be an evangelist, continues to be the, the greatest church planner the, the early church had ever seen. He writes half of the New Testament books. And yet, where does Paul put himself in this category? You think about the napkin, like where would Paul put himself? Would he put himself up above Mother Teresa and, and Billy Graham on that napkin? Now, Paul puts himself in the bottom of the box. Did you catch 
how he changes pronouns all along in the section. When he's bringing in this bad news, he's talking about they, 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 you, 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 and all of a sudden he switches to the pronoun we. Paul is including himself in the bottom box. Verse 9 says, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. Paul is understanding that, that he is not good enough on his own merit, that he even calls himself a sinner of sinners in other places of the Bible. Because Paul has a grasp of how deep his sin actually goes. Paul sees that he doesn't fall into that top box, he, he falls into the bottom box. See, there are only two boxes. Those who have lived up to God's moral standards and those who have not lived up to God's moral standards. And Paul is showing that everyone is in the bottom box. Everyone. Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, Paul himself, you, me, Jeffrey Dahmer, Hitler, everybody is in that bottom box. We're going to hit this next week. But Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody is in that bottom box. There's only one who is in that top box, and that's Jesus. It's only Jesus. Jesus is the only human in the history of the world that has lived up to God's standards. That's why he's the only one that can go to the cross for us and pay that penalty for our sins. Yet, despite this, there are always those who try to shove everyone else into the lower box, but include themselves in the top box. And that's, that's the problem with religion. That's the problem with moralism. Moralism thinks that you can be good enough on your own. Just, just improve your behavior. Just be good enough. Religion makes you look at the law to make you righteous, to look at the law to make you feel superior to others. But what Paul has tried to do over and over again here is to get these self-righteous, moralistic, judgmental people to see that they are not any better than anyone else. There's got to be the only people that are left standing at the end of this. What Paul is doing is trying to show that, that we're all in the same boat here. We're all in the same boat. No one is righteous, not even one. Good news, huh? You know, this isn't good news, but one thing this should definitely do for us, you know, in the church, sometimes we can be a little religious, be a little moralistic, but looking at the law, the law should make us humble. Christians should be one of the most humble people on this planet because we understand that we do not measure up to the law. The law was put in place to show us that we don't measure up and to show us that we need something else. So finally, the law reveals that we need a savior. Paul is saying, you immoral people, you're all lost. You moral people, you're all lost. So where does that leave us? 
Where does that leave us? Are we just going to dwell in this bad news? Well, I'm going to tell you what the good news. Come back next week, and we'll talk about the good news. I'm just kidding. We're going to, we're going to keep going with that. Tim Keller, who we, we, we have a quote of trying to quote at least once a week. So here's your, your Tim Keller quote. But he uses this, this illustration that, that I really loved. And I actually alluded to it a little bit a couple weeks ago when I preached, but I didn't fully get into it. And Nate sent me a Slack message. He said, hey, have you heard this illustration? This would be great for that. And I'm like, yeah, I kind of used it. And I looked at it again. I'm like, ah, oh, we're going to use it again anyways. Uh, so I didn't really get into it fully. But Tim Keller uses this illustration. He said in the 1970s, there was this enormous bestseller by Thomas Harris called I'm Okay, You're Okay. It was this little self-help book, and it actually stayed up top on the New York Best Times seller for two years. In the 1990s, a woman named Wendy Kaminer wrote a devastating critique of the self-help movement. Basically, she shows how narcissistic the whole idea was. She says, how in the world can one say that this is mental health to say, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. Yet out there in the world, there is all this bloodshed and these, these innocent people crying out from the ground for justice. There's genocide, there's terrorism, there's all this awful stuff. How in the world can you um, say it, it's the sign of mental health to go out into the world and say, everybody is okay, you're okay, I'm okay. That's narcissism, she says, and she hilariously deconstructed it. About 10 years later, she came up, out with a, a, another book and to show that she was in a little bit of a bind because her whole point was, hey, with all this injustice and the innocent blood crying out from the ground for justice, how can anyone say, um, I'm okay and you're okay? And the subtitle of her book was, I'm okay and you're nowhere near okay. So in her new book, she was very critical of what she called the hard right, because she saw a lot of people saying, yeah, there is evil out there, and we have to bring back the death penalty. We have to go to war. And she suddenly saw all these people saying, I'm okay, and the rest of you are not okay. She says the trouble with I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, was narcissism. But to say, I'm okay, and I have the truth, you all are evil, and I'm going to punish you, that's how you get death camps. That's how you get, I'm a superior race. You're the inferior race. I'm the superior person. You're the inferior person. She says that's moralism, and that's as bad as narcissism. So what's left? There's masochism. I'm not okay, but everybody else is. Of course, that's not right either. So what's left? In the 1970s, a minister and a great Bible teacher named John Gerstner, you probably haven't heard of him, but he was, he was speaking and he referenced the book, I'm Okay and You're Okay. And he says, how does that compare to the message of the Bible? Then he told a story, and he tells a story about how him and his wife went to Asia, and they did this little excursion where they had to take this, this small boat to their excursion, and they're, they're on their way back from their excursion, and it's just him and his wife and, and the boatman and his grandson, and they could hardly speak any English. But when they're driving back, another boat hits them, and it's significant enough that it splashes up enough water that they were soaked from like their waist down. 
And he says that the boatman just got really irate about the whole thing, and he just keeps getting more and more worked up, and, and, and John says, you know, it's not a big deal. He says, I'm okay, it's just a little bit of water, we're okay. And they drive a little bit further, and the boatman is getting more and more irate, and he's like, it's okay, we're okay, we're, we're just a little wet, we're, we're all okay, we're all okay. And they get a little bit further down, and he is even more irate. And, and John is thinking in his head, like, this guy thinks he is superior to everybody. Like, he's just so mad at this other boatman that we got a little bit of water on ourselves. He says, we're okay. And the boatman finally looks at him and he says, no, we're not okay. You're not okay. And he pulls up to the dock and he pushes everyone up on the, on the dock and he throws his grandson up and gets out onto the dock himself. And within the minute, the boat just completely sank and then reappears like six boats over on the other side. So what John didn't realize is there was a hole in the hull and the whole boat was going down. And this whole time he's saying, we're okay, we're okay. And only the boatmen knew that they were not really okay. See, that's the message of the Bible. I'm not okay, you're not okay. And you can go on believing and, and just have this moralistic behavior of just trying to follow all the rules, do all the right things, avoid all the bad things, but in the end, all that's gonna happen is you're gonna go down with a boat because you're missing the fact there's a hole in the hull. You know, in the message, Eugene Peterson actually titles this, we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. We are all sinners who fall short. The law was not put in place so that we could be righteous. The law was put in place so that we could see that we couldn't possibly do it on our own. We are no better than others, and we need help. We need a Savior. We need Jesus. This is the problem with moralism. If you think you're more righteous than others and you want to look down your nose at others and sit on your high horse, you're just going to go down with the ship. Paul writes a, a lot about the law in Galatians 3 as well, and, and I'm, I'm going to just hit this really fast. Galatians 3.21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. The law cannot make us righteous. The law cannot give life. The law can only show us that we're actually dead in our own sins and our trespasses because we can't follow the law perfectly. Galatians 3.23, now before faith came, we were held captive under law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. In verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. See, the law was put in place to show that we can't possibly measure up. It is such a high standard that we all fall short repeatedly. It doesn't bring life. It can't make us righteous. It was just our guardian until Christ came so that we could see our need for Jesus Christ. It was just a tutor so that we could see that we can only be justified by faith. The law shows us our sin 
and shows us our need for a savior. So enter Jesus, right? That was part of the plan from the very beginning. God knew that we were going to fall. God knew that we couldn't follow the law. God knew that we would be self-righteous in our own moralistic behavior and look down on others. God knew that we could not be justified by our own good works. So the plan from the very beginning was to send a Savior for us. Not only that, that was going to be a Savior that would, would die on a cross and take all of our sin upon himself. All the sins we were caught in, all the sins we have hid, all the sins where we thought we were doing good things, but we only served our own selfish desires, our self-centeredness, our self-righteousness. Jesus paid for all our sin. And in this great reversal, he not only takes our sin, but he gives us his righteousness in return. You know, years ago, um, this was back in, uh, oh man, probably late 1990s, early 2000s, but I was part of a, a big church. And this is when all the churches were trying new things to reach new generations. So they uh, brought in this artist. And uh, they're, they're playing a worship song, and this artist is just over on his side, just drawing this picture. And um, I'm a little skeptical to begin with. I'm like, what is an artist doing on the stage? And so I'm, I'm skeptical to begin with. And he starts drawing this picture, and what he's drawing, I'm like, he's not really any good. Like, why am I, I being distracted by this? I don't even remember what he was drawing, but I remember thinking, this, this artwork is not very good. And then what he does in this artwork is, it's almost like he realizes that he's not drawing it very good, and he starts to scribble out some of the things that he had already drawn and shading in different parts. I'm like, okay, th this guy understands that he sees his artwork for exactly the same way that I see it, and he's not very good. And then this artwork isn't even artwork anymore. It's just this, like, chaos on this sheet of paper, on this canvas. And then just when you think it couldn't get any worse, he flips it over, and he had been drawing it upside down this whole time, and it was this beautiful portrait of Jesus. That's a little bit of what Paul is doing here. He's showing us the chaos and, and, and all the bad that is happening. And you see this drawing and you're like, there's, there's no good in this. There's, there's no beauty in this. But you see the beauty when it is flipped over and you realize that it's all about Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul does here. I mean, just taking that napkin illustration, what Jesus does and what the good news of the gospel is, is that is just flipped over. Jesus takes our spot, takes on our sin. He becomes the one, because of our sin, that doesn't stand up to God's standards of goodness anymore, even though he lived a perfect life. And he gives us his righteousness so that we come up to the top side of that napkin. Because of Jesus' righteousness, because of the, what he did to pay for our sins, we, if we have faith in what he has, has actually done in the gospel, we enter that top side. But that's the only way we can do it. If you try to be moralistic, if you try to follow the law, um, by the way, I hope you try to follow the law. I'm not trying to create a bunch of rule breakers here, but you cannot become righteous by following the law. It is only by faith in Jesus. 
So what about for us? Let me just say, like, if you're yet to become a Christian and you're listening this morning, what I would hope you would take from this message is that you can't be good enough. Man, there's so many people in the world that, that I feel like have, have this, this layer of, like, I can just be good enough. Like, if there is a heaven, I'm going to get there because I'm good enough. And let me just tell you, you are not good enough. You are not good enough to meet God's moral standards. So for those of us who would say that we are a Christian, this is the message for us this morning. We're no better than anybody else. We are no better than anyone else because we are a sinner just like everyone else is. We are all sinners. We are all in the same boat and we all need a savior. We all need Jesus. So here's how I want to end this section of the bad news. And trust me, there is good news to come. Romans is full of the gospel and full of good news. But I think it's fitting as we finish up this bad news, and this is going to be really strange to finish up a sermon this way, but I would like us to pray a prayer of confession together. I want us to pray this and just understand our own spiritual bankruptcy. To understand that apart from Christ, that you are just like everyone else. You're going to go down with a ship. There is no hope outside of Jesus. So if you would, please stand and let's read this together. And it is long, but trust me, our sin is much longer than this confession. So I'll invite the worship team up to get set while we're reading this. So let's pray this. O Lord God above. Okay. Just read it with me. I thought for a second it wasn't up on the screen because nobody was reading with me. Let's start over. O Lord God above, your law exposes and condemns me. When it denounces mankind, it points at me. At any given moment, I suppose, I may appear to be a fairly decent person, but when the light of your holy law searches and exposes the true inner movements of my soul, I too stand condemned. No amount of behavioral adjustment on my part, no depth of psychological self-mastery can go down deep enough to remove or even control my sinfulness. Sin has marked my psyche, branded my soul, seared my conscience, and encouraging my sins is my insulting, impudent attitude toward you. I do not fear you. I treat you as if your promises were cheap and your threats were empty, so there is no way that I deserve your approval. I close my mouth and claim nothing from you as my due. For once in my life, O oh God, let me right now admit my guilt before you without evasion, without excuses, without blaming my circumstances or parents or anyone else. I sin because I am sinful. O oh, holy God, I humble myself before you and accept our dismal assessment of me as searchingly true and stingingly accurate. Have mercy on me a sinner. In the holy name of Christ, amen.
Thankfully, God does show us mercy. And we'll see more of this gospel coming up. Amen.